Welcome to Software Security Chat Chat, episode 94 for Friday the 13th in July of 2012. I'm Chester Wisniewski, and I'm here with Paul Ducklin. Uh, Paul, welcome back. It's been a while since you've been on the Chat Chat. Hello, Chester. Uh, I hear you're having summer at last in Vancouver, just as we're enjoying our midwinter. Yeah, just a wee bit. Actually, it's supposed to be beautiful this upcoming weekend, and we didn't really have a summer last year at all, so uh, maybe we'll at least get a couple weeks in this year before... Well, of course, I... In a little over a week, I had to Las Vegas, where it's currently, uh, I think they have a heat advisory today for 116 degrees Fahrenheit. So um, if I think this is warm, I've got news coming to me when I get to Vegas. Reasonably busy week for uh, news topics for us to discuss. I uh, wanted to start out with DNS Changer. I mean, the, the press kind of portrayed that the world was going to end, the internet would stop, and everything would cease to exist uh, on Monday. Of course, nothing really happened. Uh, what's your take on the, the whole brouhaha? Chester, what was disappointing to me was the sort of coverage that this got in the media, or the sort of terminology which the media chose to use. So we were hearing about internet blackout, we were hearing about people being cut off, we were hearing about widespread malware infection. And in fact, none of those were true. There wasn't going to be a blackout, and you weren't going to get cut off the internet. In other words, you'd still be connected. You just wouldn't be able to use DNS, which means you wouldn't have a street directory or a roadmap. But the implication was, oh, you've done something wrong and someone's going to come around to your house and snip the cable. And the other problem was the implication, at least that I saw from the media reports, that if you did a virus scan of your computer, you'd know whether you were going to be affected or not. And actually, the lesson to be taken out of all of this, even if you weren't affected in this case, is that this whole issue was to do with the after-effects of a malware infection, not of a malware infection itself. So you could have removed this virus years ago, but if you didn't go and check the configuration changes which it had made, then you could still be affected years later by having your computer directed to a DNS server that was not the one you intended. Yeah, I, I, I guess the other problem is that, that a lot of this was masked by ISPs who decided to uh, silently redirect requests that were going to these servers to their valid servers. Yes, and sometimes that's a difficult decision to make for a service provider, or in, in the case of the FBI, whether they should do a public service by running these servers to stop things breaking while they finish up their investigation. And that's the lesson that we need to take out of this. You can be affected by malware long after you are no longer infected. And when you've had a break-in at home, you don't just call a glazier to come and fix the broken window. You hopefully go and do what you might call a security audit of your house. Are my passports still in place? If you have things like firearms, have they been stolen? In other words, you do a bit of a review to find out what the side effects of the breach were. And it should be exactly the same when your computer becomes infected by some activity of a cyber crook. So moving along to the next topic, uh, Patch Tuesday, of course, was uh, the day after this DNS changer doomsday. Uh, Microsoft released nine patches total, uh, eight for Windows, one for Mac, three of which were critical. Uh, the big one was MS-12043, which fixed a zero-day hole. It had already been exploited in targeted attacks that Sophos Labs had been reporting uh, against the Microsoft XML service. And also, Chester, don't forget that that XML vulnerability was available to everybody, unfortunately, through a Metasploit plugin. Uh, so you really need to get out there and patch this stuff right away. Uh, there's two more critical vulnerabilities um, Microsoft released, both of which impact Internet Explorer, one only for IE9 the other for all versions of IE. 
So in essence, uh, where if you're using IE anywhere, you need to get these out there right away, and there's not a lot of time to waste. And and I know in the past we've talked, Paul, about you know having these patch windows where people look at stuff for 90 days before they roll it out, and there really doesn't seem to be time for that anymore, is there? My advice, Chester, is what I like to call the rule of threes. If you have a change control regimen in which there are things that you like to take three months over, Try and revise your procedures so you can deal with those in three weeks. And the stuff that you used to pride yourself on doing in three weeks, try to get it together so you can do that in three days. And the stuff that you used to do in three days, maybe it will be good to have a mechanism that you can actually do that in three hours. After all, whether you apply a patch after three hours or three months, if something goes wrong, you're going to need some kind of immediate response mechanism to roll it back anyway. So you may as well face the music sooner rather than later, because otherwise the cyber crooks are going to get you. Good advice, Paul. And, you know, I, I think another strategy I've been working with uh, people I consult with on these things is to separate them out into where they need to go. If you, you know, if you don't have the time on your staff, figure out the priority based on what the server's roles are and that kind of thing. You know, if you've got an exchange server and you're smart enough to not surf from it, you probably don't need to spend time getting IE patches on there when you need to be patching your workstations where you're surfing and get those IE patches there. Whereas other components that may be used across platforms or across services, obviously you need to prioritize those in your server environment like the RDP patch last month. Speaking of applications that uh, maybe are, are, are flawed or undesirable or don't do something we expect, uh, it was reported that there was some malware found on the iTunes store this week uh, called Find and Call. And, uh, you know, I was looking through this story that uh, Vanya wrote up for us on, on Naked Security, and I didn't really get a vibe of malware. I mean, it, it sounds like it's a uh, an undesirable app, but I'm not sure that, that Apple's at fault here. Uh, did, did you look into this at all? Chester, my understanding is that when this app first loads, it goes and grabs all your contact details stashes them in the cloud somewhere where the company can use them later. And unfortunately, that's exactly what they did. They then start sending SMSs to all your chums. So they collected what you might say is an egregious amount of data, and then they used it in what you might call an unprofessional fashion. Again, is that the fault of the application, or is that simply a problem with the service behind it? And of course, that raises the question, if the App Store is to be the arbiter of long-term security, should Apple be looking at more than the application? Should it be about the service that goes with it? And I think there's a strong case for saying yes, it should. How would you go about vetting people? How would you go about vetting organizations? That's the $64,000 question, isn't it? I guess what I'm trying to say is that Apple is making itself the judge, jury, and executioner of the applications and therefore the services you can access on the iPhone and the iPad. And it does seem an irony that this application is considered acceptable, although the use to which it is put by the vendor is not. But yet, trusted security companies aren't allowed to write security applications for the iPhone or the iPad, which work in any really decent way. In other words, for example, have a kernel driver. So it seems that there is a little bit of a goose and a gander problem here. I actually don't know how to solve it, Perhaps the best way is that Apple takes a bit of a risk and goes down the Google path and says, OK, there's an option you can use that will allow you at your own risk to think outside the box or to shop beyond the company store. 
or 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 at least um you know provide uh or or restrict the ability for applications to mine all the data off your device and ship it off into the cloud unencrypted so you're saying that that for a company that wants to access your personal information very aggressively perhaps there would be a higher bar to jump over before your application gets vetted yeah cuz from what i understand this application grabbed your address book and shipped it off to this company in an unencrypted form to which then they could do whatever they wanted with it Okay, so even if we ignore the service angle of things about what they do with the data later, because they could sell it on lawfully, and then the person they sell it to could do something dodgy with it, it does seem that there's definitely something inappropriate in the application, and that on those grounds alone, you could argue that Apple should have refused it, or should have smelt a rat, if you will. Yeah, and I, I think they're going to take a lot closer look at applications that are accessing address book information after the last little incident a couple months ago with, uh, I can't remember the name of the applications now, but there was three or four in the app store that, you know, also were insecurely transmitting people's address books, and there was a bit of a, a furor over it. Indeed, there's no standardized way, even for companies that intend to do the right thing with your data, to decide how long you want that data to be kept for, or how long you want them to be allowed to consider it valid. So you can't even tag your data with some kind of expiry date, which means that you can argue that this problem is only going to get cumulatively worse over the next few years. Yeah, unfortunately. And speaking of unfortunate things, I guess the folks down in San Diego had a rather unfortunate experience on American Independence Day <laughs> when um, the uh, fireworks display was slightly abbreviated from, uh, from what I gather. And is a, is a virus at fault? I mean, the rumors are that a virus caused this. There is a security angle to this, folks, so please listen on. And it's amusing, but only because it all ended well without anybody being killed or seriously injured. Independence Day fireworks, San Diego Bay, four barges, synchronized fireworks, 17 minutes of amazing fireworks. So this is going to be like what you know I'd be used to on Sydney New Year's Eve, really big stuff. And due to some kind of fault, instead of lasting for 17 minutes, it lasted for 17 seconds. And there's an amusing video online of somebody who, filming it and who afterwards says, wow, that was awesome. He's wondering what the remaining 16 and three quarter minutes are going to be like. So it sort of proves two things. Firstly, don't blame a virus. We need to get over that because that's what came out in the stories. Maybe a virus was responsible. That seems vanishingly unlikely. You know, sometimes you just have to face the music and say it was a software flaw. And the other thing it proves is that if you mix all the colors of the rainbow, uh, then you do indeed get white light, because those explosions were quite something. But yeah, I, I, as I say, I thought we'd got over this virus ate my homework excuse years ago. It seems that we haven't. And guys, if you have had some kind of software disaster or software flaw, be big enough to admit it, because only that way can you actually fix it and move on. So speaking of fessing up, uh, three organizations stepped forward today that... Uh lost a lot of data uh, on their users again. We had uh, Formspring, which is some sort of social network, um, Yahoo Voices, and last but not least, Android Forums, which is a very popular uh, uh, Android discussion site about general Android topics. And all, all told, it was millions of people. And normally I would preface this story by saying, you know, X million hashes or this, that, and the other thing. Uh, turns out Yahoo apparently was storing people's passwords in plain text. Have we learned nothing? Uh, I mean, is fessing up enough for these companies? Is that all they need to do is go, oh, sorry, uh, <laughs> we screwed up, and then they just move on, and there's no, no result from any of this? Chester, I was careful to say, fess up, fix it, and move on. 
and at least in Yahoo Voice's case, that didn't happen. They were still storing their passwords in a way which went out of vogue for security reasons on the Unix platform in, what, the late 1970s? Don't store passwords in plain text. Not only could they be stolen and then instantly reused, but it also means that then any administrator on that system or anyone who ever looks at that file can actually very easily determine the sort of passwords that users choose. And that information is simply not necessary. You don't have to store it. You can store a salted hash of the password instead, and that makes things much more difficult for the crooks. Well, that was the case at Formspring, right? Uh, the case at Formspring was that they stored salted SHA-256 hashes, so that at least uh, is a little better. I mean, I guess it's best if you don't lose your hash database to begin with. That is a much better start. <laughs> By having your eggs in a basket that's in a basket that's in a basket, then indeed you do make things more difficult. So when someone does make a mistake, like Formspring did, it's easier to forgive them and easier to continue to trust them if they can actually show that there were some additional steps they took that mean that the consequences of their error are likely to be much smaller. Correct. And, you know, in the case of Yahoo, I, I think that they, they were using a more modern system in their live production environment. They released a statement saying that this data was an older database from the company they had acquired uh, associated content that became Yahoo Voices. You know, but they had two years to kind of clean this stuff up. So I'm wondering, are there some best practices we can end the podcast with? I mean, a lot of companies buy other organizations. I mean, Sony used that excuse in some of their attacks last year, saying, oh, that credit card database was from a gaming company we bought, and we forgot to turn it off, and all those unencrypted credit card numbers got stolen. You know, are there some practices that organizations should do when they acquire a new company? I mean, how do you suss out all this stuff? How do you find it and get rid of it and clean up? When company X acquires company Y, it's an excellent opportunity to review the security practices of X and Y and take the best of both. There's absolutely no excuse for entering into what you might call a race to the bottom. You can actually use it as an opportunity to adopt practices which will improve the position of both parts of the organization. And in particular, if you've had two years to fix it, that's not really an explanation. It's just an excuse. Well, uh, it was great having you back, Paul. Uh, that concludes Software Security Chat Chat episode 94. And Chester, may I say that since it's Friday the 13th, uh, we'd love to hear from somebody who has a Friday the 13th virus because you just don't get the good old school stuff anymore. <laughs> All right. People can email us at tips at sophos.com if they wish to, uh, to tell us about their Friday the 13th virus, if somebody can still find a copy of that. We, uh, as always, the latest security news is all at nakedsecurity.sophos.com. This podcast is available via iTunes or RSS, so please subscribe and rate us and let us know how we're doing. And until next time, stay secure.